and action. Hello out there to all our 34 Circe podcast. And cut. <laughs> Hello out there to all our 34 Circe Salon podcast listeners. I'm Don Sam Alden. And I'm Sean Marlon Newcomb. Thank you so much for following this podcast and for your support for programs that explore the untold stories of female agency and adventure throughout history. This program is more than just something that we love doing, and we really deeply love it. It's also a mission for us. And we'd love for it to be a mission for you as well. So we've created an account on Patreon, a fundraising website, in order to help us fund the podcast and some other really great, really fun projects that we have planned. So if you're able, please go over to patreon.com slash 34 Circe and pledge your support. You can do a one-time donation or a monthly subscription. And any amount, even a dollar, helps fulfill the mission to help make matriarchy great again. So thank you for taking the time to listen to us in this exciting little commercial spot that we've given you. So <laughs> now on to the show. Welcome to the 34 Circe Salon. Welcome to Make Matriarchy Great Again. And welcome everyone to the 34 Circe Salon, Make Matriarchy Great Again. I am Sean Marlon Newcomb, and I am here with Don one, Sam Alden. I was going to say the one and only, but uh, let's give you... <laughs> oh I my haven't goodness. Used the, I haven't used the angelic choir in a while. <laughs> a heavenly host has welcomed me. That's pretty good. Oh, so we are... Um, Returning to a series that we initiated uh, a little bit ago called Misogyny in the Ancient World, um, because for both Dawn and for me, uh, Dawn and me, we have um, noted just the extremes of misogyny that is readily apparent in the readings that we do in researching some of the subjects uh, that we talk about. And we thought, Really, we should put a little spotlight on this. So uh, we're returning to the series this time to talk about uh, your friend and mine, Hesiod. Hesiod. So he was considered the father of didactic poetry, which is poetry that is instructional and or moralizing. So this would be essentially poetry written um, to teach a lesson or to give instruction. And uh, Hesiod was a contemporary of Homer, which means that his works, and only three of them survive, um, his works are among the oldest uh, Greek poetry um, that survives. And it's interesting, too, that the fact that he is contemporary, you know, of course, with both, there is always the question of authorship. I, I tend to uh, fall among the group that believes that there was a Homer and was a Hesiod. Hesiod, there's, there's less uncertainty about Homer. It tends to be questioned more. 
But it's interesting that both are around the same time. And you get these two major, you know, these made not just two, but major works of Greek writing. So each has two works that are particularly that they're well known for. Homer, of course, has the Iliad and the Odyssey, mm-hmm. the story of the Trojan War, and Odysseus then and the Odyssey of Odysseus' journey home after the ten years of the Trojan War. And then for our subject today, Hesiod, he has two works. Um, one is called the Ogeny. And the other is called Works and Days. And those two works mainly concern themselves with, uh, frankly, in my opinion, reading through them, cataloging lots of stuff over and over again. Right. But well, to be didactic sure, poetry. So there exactly. you go. <laughs> so, yeah, Theogony is basically, you know, this God begat that God and that God begat another God. And uh, here's how all the gods line up and why, you know, you know, the Olympians are in power. Uh, Works and Days are, is sort of a, uh, a how-to guide for practical living for the modern Greek man. Modern yes, and, it's, and it is very different from Homer in that it is from the common man's point of view, right? He's sort of, he's sort of writing for and uh, from, uh, you know, your everyday dude in Greece, yeah, I think I would say more for, although with Homer, I mean, you know, Homer's, Homer's the drama writer, right? He's the big, he's the Hollywood storyteller. Right. And, and and we've done, if you know, if anyone's interested, we have another 3460 channel called The Parallax. We've gone through all the chapters of the Iliad with our friend, Dr. Gary Stickle, and we're going to be doing the Odyssey soon. So having gone through the Iliad, you know, you really develop, I certainly developed a, a much deeper appreciation you know, diving into the chapters of what Homer did. So he is really the drama, right? He's telling the great stories and he is and he's an telling, extraordinary writer. Yes. And he's telling, but he's telling the stories to my point. He's telling the stories of the rich and famous, right? The heroes. Yes. Yeah, the, absolutely. I would agree with you. That's certainly Hesiod is, he's more focused on, although, I mean, in Theogony, he's talking about the gods, but That's in true. works and days, he's talking to the average person about how to live a practical, good life. I mean, it's, uh, as you know, I will tease you often about the practical New Englanders because you're from New England, but it's, <laughs> it's that kind of sensibility. It's just how, you know, how do you handle your debts? How do you, you know, what's the right season to, you know, uh, board a ship and trade your goods and how do you treat your neighbors? That sort of thing. So yeah, he is much more about everyday common life. Um, but, you know, again, for me, what, what stands out, um, one, is that Homer is a much, much, much better writer. And I'm not alone in that. Most scholars agree that it's not even close. Homer is just de- transcendent. Okay, Hesiod is, again, like you say, it's practical writing. He's just kind of telling you, here's what happened, and here's all the gods that existed, and here's how they came about. And he seems to be genuinely devout, you know, uh, Greek uh, person, a religious person. Mm-hmm. He and generally seems to like Zeus. And, and, well, uh, yeah. Respect because, Zeus. Of course, you know, Zeus is the ultimate dude in ancient Greece. Um, Are you hinting at something about oh, Hesiod's Oh, we'll, we'll get into it. But um, one thing to note is that according to Herodotus, the historian Herodotus, uh, Hesiod's theogony became sort of the accepted and definitive version 
of this, these old stories of the gods and of the sort of genesis of the Olympian pantheon. And that became sort of the broad based um, agreement of how it actually happened that, that wound up uh, sort of linking all of the Greeks in the ancient times. So even though he wasn't the best poet, um, his, his version of the events came to be accepted as, um, as the, the definitive version of those events. And, and that's significant. Uh, we'll, we'll start to get into it now. I mean, for me, what is significant about that is that I, you know, I, being contemporary uh, American, you know, I have to look at it from the standpoint of what our cultural legacy is. And we have a legacy of the, the Bible and Christianity. And so this notion of what's written in the Bible uh, has a great deal of weight in terms of how people who are practicing people of the faith, but even people who aren't of the faith as it impacts culture, it's how we look at um, stories that, that are received about the creation, how the world came about, what its nature is. And so Hesiod has that kind of role. He's the authority. People also, of course, you know, Homer has a gods and goddesses, uh, and particularly we emphasize the goddesses that are really important in Homer's stories. But Hesiod's is about this is what the rules are. Homer is telling stories that they're involved in. But Hesiod is telling us how the, uh, the, the shape and structure of their authority so to speak. And so he carries a lot of weight, like you say, right. he becomes that, that voice. Yes. Um, yes. What, and and the, the 800 verses of works and days similarly become sort of like a, I believe the, the example you used, Sean was like a farmer's almanac that it becomes, yeah, yeah. it becomes sort of like the go-to book on how you make your day-to-day decisions about how you're going to live in the world. Uh, he's really a, a guide, yeah, a guide to practical living in many ways. You know, he talks a lot, and he gives uh, what is interesting in the context of what we're going to talk about—the misogyny. He gives all this advice, which, like I was saying to you, you might really appreciate. I mean, it's just the sense of—I mean, contextually, it's not exactly helpful now about going down to the gas station or you know the the hardware store, but it's the sensibility of how to handle things like your debts and how to handle things like how you practice uh, behavior with your neighbors or people you do business with, that sort of thing. So it is a very, very basic um, practical book um, that I think, you know, we even today appreciate a lot of aspects of, which is why it's even more sinister and troublesome, right? The right. little messages that are carried therein, right? Exactly. Yeah, you had you had uh, uh, brought up, you know, sort of potential parallels in the United States, and so his works and days would be similar to some of the early writings of Benjamin Franklin, or perhaps uh, Alexander Hamilton, his Federalist mm-hmm. Papers, where they're they're talking about, you know, what what life should be and how to make that come about. What are practical day-to-day things you can do to make that come about? And um, uh, Yeah, and imagine those works then containing um, something like this. May I read a little something from Well, Biogeny? let me just real quick oh, sure, before we please, start. Please. Um, let me just uh, give a little content warning, which I should have done at the beginning. But um, oh, good point. Yeah. I just wanted to say, you know, if you've read Malcolm Gladwell's Blink, you know um, that there is scientific evidence that says that if you remind people of the ways in which they are oppressed, 
that um, their ability to function in the world is impacted. So like when people were taking a test, if they were reminded of their oppressions and disadvantages in society before the take, they took the test, they would, they would score lower on the test than if they were reminded of things, ways in the world in which they excelled. Um, this is incredibly important. Thank you for yeah, bringing that up. Yeah, yeah. So uh, we're about to say some really horrible things about women. We're quoting quoting Hesiod as as he says some really horrible things about women. Um, so it's uh, you know just be warned that um, that if you are a woman listening to this, uh, that this is going to um, this is going to hurt. It's not going to be fun. Um, but yeah. we are we are saying it because we want to emphasize that this is one of sort of the founding fathers of Greek philosophy, and so much of our society, our Eurocentric society in the United States, draws on all of those principles from ancient Greece. Um, so we are sort of wanting to shine a light. Um, to really illuminate the fact that these um, Greeks that we hold in such high regard and whose thinking and logic we revere, um, that their philosophies were deeply and horribly anti-female. And it's, I I couldn't, it's perfectly said. Uh, And the point of, this is to let you hear those words so you know what is there and so you understand that so much of what we receive, particularly when we start talking about other subjects like what the existence of whether matriarchies had existed in earlier days, whether they're the kinds of female tribal rulers, the women in history that we talk about, one of the reasons it's often difficult for scholars and people trained in um, the the long history of our academic uh, traditions, sometimes it's difficult for them to see these things because these traditions are embedded with this particular strain of misogyny. And so it sometimes is not believable. So this is from Theogony. Theogony, again, is, is Hesiod's work explaining the sort of the genealogy of the gods and goddesses, um, how they came about, some of their stories, um, these different... Um, the like for us the the traditional what would have been for Greek the traditional religious framework of how the gods operate and uh, how the universe operates how the universe operates yeah. how it was come about so this is so in this um, in the Ogeny, he talks about um, where a, a plague that is going to be brought about. Um, upon mankind. And the, the plague is brought because Prometheus gives fire to men. So he gives men the ability to cook, to warm themselves, to all the things. But of course, we, we take for granted that, that heat and fire bring us and that we get in different forms in the modern world. So out of his anger, Zeus decides that since Prometheus has stolen this great gift brought it to mankind, that he will punish mankind and he will punish them in this way, and I quote, At once he made an affliction for mankind to set against the fire. 
the renowned ambidexter, who was uh, another name for Hephaest, uh, Hephaestus, uh, Vulcan, molded from earth the likeness of a modest maiden by Cronus's son's design. The pale-eyed goddess Athena dressed and adorned her in gleaming white garment. Down over her head she drew an embroidered veil, a wonder to behold, and about her head she placed a golden diadem, which the renowned ambidexter made with his own hands to please Zeus the father. On it were many designs, fashioned a wonder to behold, all the formidable creatures that the land and sea foster. Many of them he put in, charm breathing over them all, wonderful designs like living creatures with a voice of their own. When he had made the pretty bane to set against the blessing, he led her out with the other gods and men, uh, where the other gods and men were, resplendent in the, in the finery of the pale-eyed one whose father is stern. Both immortal gods and mortal men were seized with wonder when they saw that precipitous trap more than mankind can manage, for from her is descended the female sex a great affliction to mortals as they dwell with their husbands. No fit partners for accursed poverty, but only for plenty. As the bees in their sheltered nests feed the drones, those conspirators of badness, and while they busy themselves all day and every day till sundown, making the white honeycomb, the drones stay inside their sheltered cells and pile the toil of others into their own bellies, even as even so as a bane for mortal men has high thundering Zeus created women, conspirators in causing difficulty. End quote. Yeah. Is, now, wait a minute. Is he saying that the women are like the, dr the, the, the drones? Yeah, he's got his he's, he's got, got his, his uh, analogy. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's screwed up his his understanding of how that all worked. Right. But because uh, <laughs> it's actually right that the the worker bees that are female and the the drones that sit inside and suck up the work of all the others that are the males. But uh, he, he, well, like everything else in ancient in the ancient world about creation, let's just flip everything around. Right. Let's just have guys give birth to everything. And right, yes. <laughs> the women yes. just come around and take all the stuff from the guys. Yeah. Let's have, you know, women be the ones that force themselves upon these innocent and helpless men uh, and have to be controlled because they cannot keep themselves under control. Everything gets flipped around yeah. instead of, of course, being the, the men who invade and take and bring war brides and abduct, right. as we saw throughout right. history. And enslave and all that sort of thing. Yeah. What do you, Don, what do you take when I, I again, I, and I will we'll read also from Works and Days, which is another work he talks about. But let's just start with this. What do you, I, we talk about it. I read this and I just, I kind of go nuts thinking this is insane. He's written, but I'm I'm reading this as a guy, and it's so I'm. There is a level of distance that I go. This is just some crap. What is this nonsense? But how does it land on you? Well, I mean, you know, we said like we said earlier, it is um, on the surface. It's it's easy to brush away. It's easy to to you know say whatever. He has a problem. He clearly has a problem with the ladies, and so. Uh, you know, he's taking it out on them by making everything their fault. But it does 
I mean, it, uh, it invades, it invades your, your sense of self, your sense of self-confidence, your understanding of women's place in the world. I mean, if you listen to that shit enough, um, eventually it becomes harder and harder to completely discount it. And that is, of course, exactly what patriarchy intends. As you were saying, I was looking for the other passage in, um, in works and days, and, I, and as I look at it, I, I don't think I can read it. I can't read these words. <laughs> I'm not going to have my voice saying some of these words. We'll have to. I might have to censor them. But I, I, but like you're saying, I mean, I, I I don't know how anyone can look at or hear something like this, hear those lines, and think that it's just kind of a trifle in a work. It's the it's the one. It's it's the very description of the birth of women. First of all. What were these guys doing before these women arrived? How were they? How were they kind of you know uh, continuing to to uh, uh, be fruitful and multiply without any women around? That's the first thing I find fascinating. So you have all these ages of men. You have uh, Prometheus bringing them fire. They're just living happily, no ladies around. You know, none of those pesky women to ruin their days. And then suddenly they drop a woman in the middle of it. It's just it just to the mindset of someone who could think that a world could exist before the people who give birth to all beings exist is that alone says something. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and and it's, it's a, it's a mindset that comes up over and over again. The idea of these gods giving birth to women, you know, uh, Zeus pulling Athena out of his skull and uh, And Dionysus out of his thigh. Yes. Yeah. Out of his thigh. Yeah. And, um, it, it just presents this world of this utopian world uh, that existed before women came along, right? I mean, that that this sense of what who what was it you said you were quoting um, Amanda Vajskop? How do you pronounce yes. her last name? I don't know the proper pronunciation of it, but I had just so for the listener, I had in, in researching this had uncovered uh, just you know I've been reading the different works by different um, uh, writers, and one of them uh, was someone who was it looks to looks to have been her thesis, maybe it would have been her PhD thesis. And if you're listening, Amanda Vazkop, is it going to be my guest? V a j s k o p. V a j s k o p is how her last name is spelled. And we apologize, Amanda, that we murdered the pronunciation of it. <laughs> yes, but it's a, it's a wonderful work. And so um, she talks about women as agents of chaos in creation myths. You know, we, you know, and that's I, obviously to anyone in the West, we're, we're familiar with the notion of the, uh, of, of Eve listening to the serpent, eating the apple, bringing misfortune upon all men. We just had a wonderful podcast that we recorded last week uh, with Elaine Pagels, which you're all going to get to hear. And I can't wait for you to hear it. Yes. We go into much more detail about that. Um, so look out for that soon. But uh, again, the idea of women as agents of chaos it, throughout these creation myths, it's the world is great, everything is fine until these women show up and just upset the apple cart because we know that in history, uh, typically these patriarchal societies, right, Dawn, they live in peace and harmony. And then these, then these women in their wheeled wagons come in and just, isn't that what happens? No. 
Oh my goodness. Uh, well, I am, I am oh, really sorry, eager to hear this. And I know, I know you don't want to read it because you don't agree with it, but I think, um, but, uh, but I think we need to hear it because we need to know what we're talking about here. Well, there's a, there's a couple of things too. I'm going to read this and I also want to read something by another writer who wrote within the same century, within a century of Hesiod. Okay. So uh, we know that Hesiod, uh, his fame, we know that within a couple of generations, his work is really known. We're not sure how well known he was in his own time. Uh, we could guess he might have been, certainly his work spread, so my guess would be he was somewhat known. Um, but I would have to imagine that these writers were um, were influenced by him. And just forgive me as I try to bring the mic in a place where I can actually see what I'm reading. Um, this is in, in Works and Days. Um, and uh, excuse me a second as I find uh, I may have I may have lost my I may have okay, lost my picture well, so I apologize we'll, we'll find it yeah in the meantime yeah, you while go you're ahead. looking for that I'll talk about the five ages of man so yes, in Hesiod's account they are the golden age in which men lived among and freely mingled with the gods, and peace, harmony, and abundance prevailed. So this is just men. This is not the human race. This is men and the gods, and this was the golden age. And then we declined to the silver age, in which men lived for 100 years as infants, followed by just a short, strife-filled time as grown adults, an impious race of men, which Zeus destroyed because they refused to refused to worship the gods. So that's a fairly similar, uh, very fairly common uh, creation myth. Um, the Bronze Age, in which men were hard and violent and lived only for war, but were undone by their own violent ways and were relegated to dar the darkness of the underworld. The Heroic Age. Uh, in which men lived as noble demigods and heroes, like those who fought at Thebes and Troy and who went to Elysium on their deaths. So women are around at that time, but it's really about you know people like Achilles and um, and Agamemnon, uh, who were uh, the, really what the the world was about at that time, the, the heroes. And then lastly, which the Iron Age, which was Hesiod's own time in which the gods have forsaken humanity and in which man lives an existence of toil, misery, shamelessness, and dishonor. You and know, speaking of which, kids today. Exactly. Now, how did they get that way? Well, let's ask our old pal Hesiod, mm -hmm. who has yet another story. So we had the story in Theogony about, you know, women being brought as a plague for the fire. Here is another of the you got fire, we'll give you women, Zeus comeback. Um, so Zeus, this is in Works and Days, says, uh, son, of Iapetos, son of Iapetos, clever above all others, you are pleased at having stolen fire and outwitted me, so Prometheus. A great calamity both for yourself and for men to come. To set against the fire, I shall give them an, an affliction in which they will all delight as they embrace their own misfortune. So saying, the father of the gods and men laughed aloud, and he told renowned Hephaestus at once to mix the earth with water, to add in a human voice and strength, and to model upon the immortal goddess's aspect the fair, lovely form of a maiden. Uh, 
Athene told to teach her crafts to weave the embroidered web and golden Aphrodite to shower charm about her head and painful yearning and consuming obsession to put in a, I'm going to say the word that rhymes with witch, to put in a bee's mind and knavish nature that was his instruction to Hermes, the go-between, the dog killer. So that is how women were formed in uh, in Hesiod's second story. Uh, and again, let's look at the language again. Give them an affliction in which they will all delight as they embrace their own misfortune. So obviously he's referring to the sexual desire men have for women. And then you embrace those women, and boy, oh boy, are you in for something. Are you going to regret it? <laughs> are you going to regret it? Yeah. Because they put this female dog's mind and navis nature inside them. So they're just, um, yeah. Yeah. He's not, they're not, it's it's not a, uh, obviously a very loving He's not uh, super depiction. flattering. Yeah. Yeah, and of course, also from uh, Theogony, I would assume, comes the story of Pandora. Well, that's from this. This is actually the yeah. beginning of the Pandora story. Okay. Uh, and this is from Works and Days. So ah, okay. in Works and Days is where you get Pandora, and in Theogony, you get the sort of unnamed gal who just brings, you know, shows up in the town with her with her good looks and her charm and just and leads these poor fellows. Beautifully embroidered veil. To uh, to make everyone think she's modest, and then she just messes up your life. <laughs> well, it's like we talked about this uh, many times. The, the laws you see in ancient cultures, where where they'll say things uh, to the extent of women must be controlled because if they're not controlled, they'll just go crazy sexually, in particular. Right. Uh, and and guys will be in trouble. And I just, you, you just for it's a second, such projection. it's amazing. <laughs> it's such it's projection. really amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just, it's, it, but astonishingly so that you think, you know, granted. Like, you know, how can they talking, say this with a straight face? I with mean, a straight face, exactly. Isn't it blatantly obvious how deeply they're projecting? Yeah. 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 Well, the, the, thing, the thing we've talked about, and, you know, I, I'll read. Um, the last bit of uh, of the work from uh, what it is, uh, the, the, the poet's name is Simonides. Simonides has this work, which is uh, pretty astonishing, actually, when you when you read it. But when we'll come to it in a second. And this is one is really a trigger warning when, you, when we, when we yeah. do read this again. And, and forgive me that I didn't want to say certain words, but I just literally don't want any recording of me saying any of this stuff floating out there cut up in some weird way. Yes, um, yeah. So I'm, I'm really careful about how I'm going to say some of this stuff. Um, but again, you think about a culture that has that kind of hostility. I mean, it's the basic notion of woman for Hesiod and thereby for the, you know, remember this is in works and days so that that passage I just read. Right. It's a, it's a poem about how to live your life, how to just do well. An instruction manual for how to live and, your life. Exactly. And part of that, it has an instruction in what to really look at that. You, I mean, you're going to have to be with one of them. You want to have kids. You want somebody to look after you in old age. And he does mention this sort of thing. But oh boy, just remember, you're going to pay a price. 
it's the craziest notion of like how you discuss the person you're going to share your life with. So, and, or even just forget that, not just the person you share your life with, the children you have, the daughter you may have, the woman who gave birth to you, these other women who were born alongside you, your sisters, your mother, your daughters. It's like, this is, that's who they are. And that's how we have to look at them. Right, right. They are these, these creature bearers of misery and shame and horror. And, you know, it is man's affliction that he has to be forced to share the same earth with them. You know, and we're talking, you know, you talked wonderfully at the outset about how we want to be careful about this by repeating these things can put, put people in a mindset of, of reinforcing these notions. But so I want to say to this is I guess what is particularly the reason to point out, point this out is to be aware that when you're listening to scholars talk about the ancient world, the, the framework by which they are examining it is it's, it's inextricable with this type of belief. Now you can say these are modern men. They don't think that of course, and I would agree with you. I don't think most, I would hope, Don, you might disagree, so you tell me your thought. I would hope most modern men don't have this mindset about womanhood. But I would say that all us men and women will ha- are affected by this mindset. Absolutely. I mean, I-, I think about it, particularly when I think about, you know, political office, and you and I have talked about this, you know, she's electable if you, she, you know, if you vote for her. Was that, was that the right phrase? Was the, was she's the electable if you f- freaking vote for her. Yes, if exactly. You, okay. <laughs> And what I always think about is what I hear as much from women as from men of this, there's something about her I just don't like. Yeah. There's just something about her. Yeah, I wonder what that thing is. Could it be that she has ovaries? I mean, yeah, it's there's always... Well, that's something about her is misogyny, right? Yeah. This, that yeah. something about her is the millennia of teachings that women are wrong and bad and can't be trusted. That's what you're feeling in your gut, but you can't put your finger on it. And, and pointing out, too, that these particular writings, these great classical authors, these authors who are esteemed and were taught in school, it's important to know that these particular authors, the framework, the great men of history that you always hear about, this is what they believed. And so when you're when you're transmitting that down through the ages, I mean, I think particularly in the 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 early what is called the dark ages uh, the middle ages kind of a, yeah yeah the middle ages it's kind of a problematic phrase for a few different reasons but you know these are the things that for example church fathers inherited some of the writings because these were all oh, these these great figures these legendary figures that they'd heard of and so they took in all this information that these men had and also part of this this like sort of the, the Trojan horse you know it's the it's the carrier it's it brings this stuff in with all this other uh, knowledge and learning that they have. And of course, if these men, these great men, if they thought this, well, there, there must be something to it, right, Don? I mean, <laughs> if Hesiod thought it, if Aristotle thought it, and that's the problem. Yes. That's why we're pointing yeah. this out. And also the fact that we don't acknowledge that when we teach them today. You know, I mean, we, we started with Aristotle uh, we started this series with Aristotle, and you know he is. Uh, you do a web search on him, and he is universally uh, lauded and praised and admired, and all this sort of thing. And nowhere do we mention 
that he had these odious and reprehensible views on women that he was just as eager to um, teach and spread and legitimize as, you know, the structure of drama. You know, part of that too, I think, you know, as you say, so he legitimizes it. They don't mention it. There's an aspect to this where, we have in culture, there's certain, we, we, as we've moved forward, particularly where we are in this day and age, where the, we are rightfully point out structural biases in culture. But there is something so deep about the structural bias against women yeah. that people just avoid it or they apologize for it or they minimize it. I mean, I think because it's so basic, perhaps, but it's like, Again, these particular things are almost always... I mean, imagine him saying this about a lot of other subjects. Imagine, uh, I mean, uh, a lot of other identities. Uh, oh, it, I see what you mean, be, yeah, yeah. Yeah, a lot of other identities that we would be very uh, much more uh, attuned to it and much more uh, uh, enraged by it. Yeah. And I just think somehow it, it seems like it's cute. Uh, right, to people right he, because it's so talks. old it's like oh those ancient greeks those silly ancient greeks we don't think that way now right or even i think there's a certain extent to which we say well we don't think that but you, you can kind of see you know women do get kind of fill in the blank Right. So, yeah. because again, somehow it's thought cute, maybe because we think, well, women are uh, inextricable in our lives. They're intertwined in everything, of course, because we all come from a woman. So, you know, there's no, there's not that fear of the, of a different tribe and what that could mean in terms of warfare and conflict and violence. They're part of your life. And so, yeah, you're going to give them a little bit of grief about this, but it's understandable, right? I think there's that kind of sensibility, yeah. that kind of fluffing off, but but it impacts these other things in life when it's not someone immediate to you. You know, when you look at the other, um, and when you look at, as you've always pointed out to me, that we live, uh, how do you put it? Men, men and, and women live in completely different worlds right next to each other. Right, yeah. right. Um, there, I... I I was going to go into a little more detail about this, uh, a writer named S uh, Simonides. Yeah. Uh, I'll just say kind of generally what he wrote. He wrote a book called The Types of Women. Now, he wrote within about, they believe, a century to a century and a half um, after uh, Hesiod. So he's right about the time where Hesiod's works and writings are um, becoming popular and becoming more read. And I think it's interesting because having gone through Homer's writings, uh, gone through the Iliad, the, I think, great depth of humanity towards all people that he expresses in that poem, as brutal as it is. I mean, some of the later classical writers would say, well, he's all about bloodshed and warfare. But I, he's all about the horrors of those things. Yes. And in particular, what, the way he the way he treats women in those writings and the way he treats the goddesses in the writings is actually astoundingly, I, I won't say modern because there's still issues now, astoundingly aware. Um, but then you've got Hesiod and then you've got Simonides. And so he has basically a, a, a poem called The Types of Women. And if I'm not mistaken, he has 10 types 
of women. Nine of them are bad. And he compares them to pigs and dogs and uh, foxes and in the most deeply hateful ways that uh, are meant to be, I assume, funny, given the way he's written them, uh, but warning men off from being around these kinds of women or choosing these kinds of There's basically only one type of woman who is worth choosing in his mind. And uh, of course, it's not going to be any kind that has her own idea or sensibility. But just I bring him up because it's what happens when you legitimize when a great man, a great thinker, a great figure legitimizes a certain kind of prejudice, right. a certain kind of, frankly, hatred. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so do you want to read a little or do you want me to do it? Would you mind? Not Actually, I, I really don't want to read yeah. that. So this is, uh, uh, it's called Women by Simonides of Amorgos. From the start, gods made women different. One type is from a pig, a hairy sow whose house is like a rolling heap of filth, and she herself, unbathed in unwashed clothes, reposes on the shit pile growing fat. Another type the gods made from a fox, pure evil and aware of everything. This woman misses nothing, good or bad. She notices, considers, and declares that good is bad and bad is good. Her mood changes from one moment to the next. One type is from a dog, a no-good bitch, a mother through and through. She wants to hear everything, know everything, go everywhere, and stick her nose in everything, and bark whether she sees anyone or not. A man can't stop her barking, not with threats, not when he's had enough, by knocking out her teeth with a stone, and not with sweet talk, either. Even among guests, she'll sit and yap. The onslaught of her voice cannot be stopped. One type the gods of Mount Olympus crafted out of earth, their gift to man, She's lame and has no sense of either good or bad. She knows no useful skill except to eat. And when the gods make winter cold and hard, to drag her chair up closer to the fire. Another type is from the sea. She's two-faced. One day she's calm and smiling. Any guest who sees her in your home will praise her then. This woman is the best in all the world and also the most beautiful. The next day she's wild and unapproachable, unbearable even to look at, filled with snapping hate, ferocious like a bitch with pups, enraged at loved ones and at enemies alike. Just as the smooth, unrippled sea at times stands still, a joy to mariners in summer, and then at times is wild with pounding waves, this woman's temperament is just like that. The ocean has its own perplexing ways. Another type is from a drab, gray ass. She's used to getting smacked and won't give in until you threaten her and really force her. She'll do her work all right and won't complain, but then she eats all day, all night. She eats everything in sight, in every room, and when it comes to sex, she's just as bad. She welcomes any man that passes by. Another loathsome, miserable type is from a weasel, undesirable in every way, uncharming, unalluring. She's sex-crazed too, but any man who climbs aboard her will get seasick. And she steals from neighbors and from sacrificial feasts. Another type, a horse with flowing mane gave birth to. 
She avoids all kind of work and hardship. She would never touch a mill or lift a sieve or throw the shit outside or sit beside the oven, all that soot. She'll touch her husband only when she has to. She washes off her body every day, twice, sometimes three times, then rubs herself with perfumed oil. She always wears her hair combed out and dressed with overhanging flowers. Such a wife is beautiful to look at for others, for her keeper. She's a pain, unless he is a king or head of state who can afford extravagant delights. Another type is from an ape. I'd say, say that Zeus made her the greatest pain of all, his gift to man. Her face is hideous. This woman is a total laughingstock when she walks through the town. She has no neck, no butt. She's all legs. You should see the way she moves around. I pity the poor man who holds this horrid woman in his arms. She's well-versed in every kind of trick, just like an ape. What's more, she has no shame and doesn't care if people laugh at her. She'd never think of doing something kind to anyone. She plots the whole day long to see how she can do the greatest harm. Another type is from a bee. Good luck in finding such a woman. Only she deserves to be exempt from stinging blame. Oh, I see. Here's one that's actually, you know, he actually has something good to say about her. Anyway, I go on. The household that she manages will thrive. A loving wife beside her loving man. She'll grow old having born illustrious and handsome children. She herself shines bright among all women. Grace envelops her. She doesn't like to sit with other women discussing sex. Zeus gratifies mankind with these most excellent and thoughtful wives. But by the grim contrivances of Zeus, all these other types are here to stay side by side with man forever. Yes, Zeus made this the greatest pain of all, woman. Yeah. Good mm-hmm. God. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And that sounds to me like nothing more than a man who doesn't want to treat a woman like a human being. And when they ask to actually be treated like humans, that's when this sort of vitriol comes out. It makes me wonder, it makes me wonder, you know, because we've talked about, uh, we've talked about previously how this clash of cultures, you know, when, um, when the uh, Indo-European came riding Mm -hmm. off of the steps and, you know, destroyed the matriarchal cultures, um, killed all the men, took the women captive as sex slaves um, and forced them, you know, to bear children and all that sort of thing. And how many, how long it took for the goddess cultures to finally be grated into nothing. Um, and it just makes me think that, you know, this is, this is the same sort of self glorifying propaganda. I I think it's, it's direct here. Yeah. Yeah. That these, that these women would have been subject to that. This is, this is absolutely a conscious effort to reduce women to nothing but, you know, uh, to essentially to reduce them to slaves. I, I, 
agree with you wholeheartedly. And I think the thing, I think the reason these particular, these poems and these sorts of things resonate for me, it's because I, my own opinion is that in popular modern culture, I see the same conscious action. I believe it's conscious. So just like you're saying about this, right? So if we go to this era and we look at, and we talk about, and these are going to obviously our own theories, uh, others are, you know, share some aspects of them. But when you go to this era and you think about the idea that, you know, we believe we accept that you and I don't know I'm talking about, except this notion that there were matriarchies that had preexisted. We think there's abundant evidence. There's abundant archaeological detail, things in the historical record that seem to echo back to it, that the works of Marie Gambutis and, of course, Vicky Noble, are our comrade in arms, mm-hmm. um, show this, indicate this, give a great deal of proof about it. Um, uh, it's so knowing that, and then knowing that there's this clash, like you say, of the Indo-European warrior, the Yamnaya, the dreaded scourge Yamnaya bane of existence, um, that they come in and topple these cultures everywhere, burning them, destroying them, bringing violence, as we know, the pattern genetically killing the men and abducting the women. So what part of that is this constant myth-making. I'm seeing it a lot now. I don't even want to bring it up about it. There's a couple of different aspects of it that um, that I'm seeing that just triggers that I'll I'll talk to you about off off air about. But I see a lot in contemporary filmmaking and culture this continual branding of certain kinds of women as troublesome, problemsome, problematic, yeah. evil, villainous. Um, one of the examples I think of is when I think of the last season of Game of Thrones, which, as you often point out, already has a lot of problematic aspects oh to it to God. begin with. Yeah, I can't. I cannot with the I Game know, of Thrones. I, yeah, I, I know. I get it. No, I get it. I, w- I watched it, and I was one of the people who watched it, and it is important to, for me, especially when you pointed out, to be aware of what I was actually kind of letting go um, among the things that I was enjoying in terms of its writing or its characterizations. But what I found interesting was, you know, you end that series, that last season, with basically a clash of two queens. But what ends up happening is that you, in that end, the branding is the two queens, the two women who had this kind of ultimate power, were the power made them insane. They were wicked, villainous harpies who destroyed everything. One of them just, you know, blows up a cathedral, a church. The other one decides to burn down a city. And, and it is until we get this poor, physically challenged boy who sees visions that we finally have our good king. Um, it's this, it, it's, to me, it's a very subtle kind of branding that continues. And this, like you say with that poem, is a, is an, and with Hesiod, it's this, the one of the aspects I think people overlook about Western cultures is that, yes, historically you can show a lot of violence, but of course in the recent century, it's as if the patriarchy learned to play the game better. And so now the violence is done through creation and do, through branding, through branding the way we look at women, through branding the way we look at, you know, I, I think I've mentioned to you before, these characters of the poor put upon misunderstood guy. He's kind of wrecked everyone's life, but really he just is misunderstood. Mm-hmm. And it's these un... you know, uncompassionate women in his life who are the real problem. It echoes back to this stuff. Yes, yes. You know, these guys are just trying to live life. And look at these 
pigs and wolves and foxes and apes and all, all these 10,000 types of women yeah. he comes up with who just makes make their who lives. Who just difficult. destroy their lives, yeah. Yeah, and yeah. that's the connection. And for me, it's I think the, that's why I wanted to talk about this. Yeah, and, and I love the word you used, myth-making. That really is, like from the beginning, it has been part of, you know, back when they did and could use physical abuse regularly to keep women, quote unquote, in their place. Mm -hmm. Even then, they still were using this psychological abuse mm -hmm. um, to also try to keep women in their place. Now we have, you know, to a certain extent advanced to the point where s supposedly... <laughs> If you use exactly. physical violence against a woman, that there will be consequences for that. Although in practice, that is not obviously not always the case. But that it's like our culture has doubled down now on the psychological abuse because it is their the primary weapon that is left. You know, it's the primary arrow that is left in the quiver at this point. I think in, uh, I 100% agree with that. And I, and I think in particular what also stands out is that psychological weapon, I, again, I want people to hear who are listening to this, that psychological weapon is created to justify the hatred and hostility towards women, right? So you have all these things where in this particular poem, he explains what the horrible things these women do to these poor put upon ancient greek men right yeah they're not even get, they're not even human these awful creatures that we exactly. call these, women yeah and these poor guys of course we know nothing about them i mean like he says i mean they you know he talks about them hit knocking your teeth out with a stone that sounds like a nice guy what do you think don <laughs> right um yeah sure, exactly you know it's, but it, i'm sure insane. he likes beer and yeah. you know <laughs> exactly he's just a good guy it's just, a, just it's just locker room talk Right. right, exactly. Yeah. And, and what happens now is we create the myth of whatever we have, of the problem, the problematic woman, and she's either the one who wants to speak to the manager, because as we've, I've said probably a thousand times, it's like, gee, what a horrible, what a horrible thing to want to speak to the manager if something's gone wrong. Well, maybe you do need to speak to the manager. But again, we create this whole kind of like myth around the, around these particular, you know, aspects of behavior that when expressed by women are supposed to be so noxious yeah. and thereby justifying the, the ritual just brutality that goes on in social media and movies and TV of just demonization and terror, frankly. Sometimes it feels like a, an act of terror the way yeah. it's, where it's gone out. Well, it is. It's psychological yeah. terror. Yeah. So I would like to, um, I'd like to close on a slightly um, kinder note. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I read this little excerpt to you before, Sean, or I showed it mm -hmm. to you. This is actually from uh, one of our sister podcasts, Breaking the Glass Slipper, which is an, a, a feminist examination of tropes in sci-fi, fantasy, and horror. And uh, they had a guest named Kat Valente. And they were talking about the ideal woman trope. And, uh, and she said, Patriarchy serves most powerfully upper-class men who can oppress the men below them and the men below them in turn oppress women. But I think that at the core of that is a difference in not just who the patriarchy served serves, but in the way it talks to each of us. Because for women, the patriarchy is a compulsion 
and for men it's a bargain. It is a deal struck with men that no matter how badly other men treat you, there is somebody less than you, and there is somebody that you can treat however you want. There is someone you have control over. So let these other men have power over you, and you can have somebody over whom you can have power. And children go along with that as well. It's a terrible bargain. And it requires men and has required for millennia to some to in some ways bifurcate their own souls and see half of humanity as not of a relation to them. To see the very person who gave you life, through whom you passed, to come into this world as not a human being. That is something that damages the soul. So I just wanted to end on that note because, as we have often said, patriarchy hurts everyone. You know, these horrible things that, that men, uh, these male, you know, esteemed figures for so many millennia have said to try to um, subdue women, oppress women, keep women in their place. Those things, they damage women, obviously, obviously but they also they also hurt the men who say them i think that's a good place for us to stop the only the only thing i would like to add is that i'm hopeful that through you know these different means that we have now of getting these stories out to the world and through the different means of creation you, know, you and i are both involved with that, that we can change the narrative and bring a very different image of women to the world, you know? I would very much like to, yes, I would like to encourage um, all of our listeners and, um, you know, hopefully we'll be right there with you um, to start creating new mythologies, to, you know, start, uh, start creating new paradigms where men, women, all genders celebrate each other for whom we are. And for what we bring to the table. Wonderfully put. And with that, I would like to thank you, Dawn Sam Alden. <laughs> and thank you, Sean Marlon Newcomb. Thank you. I'll give myself a little. There you go. Yes. All right. Let's celebrate each other. That's there right. There you have it. <laughs> so this has been the 34 Cersei Salon. Make Matriarchy Great Again. We've been talking about Hesiod. We'll be back with plenty more for you very soon. Thank you all for listening. Take care, everyone, and blessed be.